So, uh, happy Mother's Day, lady. I remember getting invited to speak at a church in Sacramento one year, and it happened to be Mother's Day. Shared a brief story with them. I want to share this story with you, and then we'll get into God's Word in Romans, where we've been for a while. I was at church one day. This is many years. This is probably 30 years ago. In my 30s, and uh, it had been a particularly fine sermon that day, and Pastor Bob, my pastor, was teaching on bitterness. And I came home and was going about daily tasks. I was was actually mowing the lawn. And the Spirit of God just landed on me. The conviction, we're going to talk about that a little bit this morning, but the conviction of the Holy Spirit came upon me so strongly. And and God spoke to my heart. He said, you're bitter towards your mother. And uh, because I had a, some people would call it a troubled childhood or there was a lot of abuse and stuff. And I'm not going to go into all of that, but I was bitter towards my mother because I had an evil stepfather that was constantly setting out to try to kill the kids kind of a thing and spent a lot of nights going to bed not knowing if I was going to be making it through the night. It was tough. And I'm not, you know, poor me or anything like that, but that was the, the, the source of the bitterness that I had packed into my adulthood, into my adult life. And that conviction was so heavy that I had to do something about it. Now, I lived in Northern California. My mother lived in Port Orchard, Washington. And it was so strong that I had to go see my mom. So made arrangements, got a guy to fill in for me at work. I, I owned a couple of businesses and had an operations guy take my place for the week. And as I said, a Sunday afternoon, and I jumped into my van and I drove straight through to Washington. I got to my mom's house about 7.30 in the morning and uh, I had stopped at a mini market on the way and gotten her a card. So I knocked on the door and my mom answered the door. Her hair was still sticking off her head and you know she just hadn't been up for long. And she said, Johnny, my family called me Johnny, what are you doing here? And I said, well, I had this card for you and I didn't have a stamp. So (laughs) I thought I would drop it off. And she said, get in here. You want some coffee? You look tired. Yeah, I'm tired. It's been a long night. Anyway, finally, and then she started to kind of freak out. I remember that because she was thinking I was there to give her some kind of notification. You know what I mean? And I'm going, no, 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 no. Everybody's fine. Everybody's fine and all that. So I get in and I sit down and I said, I need to talk to you. She said, what about I said, I need to ask you to forgive me. I feel the emotion of it even now. And she said, what for? I said, I've been bitter towards you for all of these years because you didn't get rid of Chuck. That was his name. And she, she flipped out. She was just like, you are asking me to forgive you. What are you talking about? Do you realize what I went through? Because she didn't have any way to feed her kids. She had six kids, no way to feed them except this guy. And so I understood that as an adult, but the point was, is that I had to be right with the Lord and I had to be right with my mother. And it was just a couple of sentences in where she just, just broke and she just started to, to weep, to, to wail. Actually, she was just like, Bleh. and I was too. And we fell into each other's arms, relationship fully restored. That was Mother's Day for me. And that was in November of 1992. And she went to be with the Lord in July of 1993, I praise God for giving me the ability to act on that conviction. There's nobody like mom. Happy Mother's Day, ladies. Uh, it's a special day. I, what I told this church in Sacramento while, while I was speaking is that, you know, we set aside one day a year. Isn't that kind of strange? Every day should be Mother's Day. I woke up this morning, my wife was sick, so I left her Mother's Day gifts on the dresser because she Pray for Stacy. She's not feeling well. Hi, hon. She's probably watching. Um, but a special day. Last week, we looked at righteousness for real people out of the book of Romans. Two weeks ago, we looked at, uh, at what it is to be justified by faith, what it is to have God's own righteousness placed on our lives, to be justified. We looked at the doctrinal significance of that, And then Paul gets very practical as he now talks about Abraham and David, what we looked at last week. In in the practical aspects is that this isn't just a a doctrine. It's not just a religious or a spiritual concept. 
It's a living reality. And it's a reality in the life of every single child of God, of, of every single believer. That's why we're called believers. Because we trust God. So we looked at that. We looked at Abraham's and David's lives. And, and in verse 5, I'm going to go through 5 through 8 just briefly because context is everything. You guys know me. And, and it is true. We, we want to catch the flow and continue with this whole thing that the Apostle Paul is laying out for the church at Rome. So, excuse me, in verse 5, he says, But to him who does not work, talking about Abraham, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Very important. You cannot get into heaven without it. It's that important. You have to possess righteousness. Talked about the divine conundrum. that, that it, How does a holy God admit unholy people into his presence, into his kingdom? That's where the cross comes in. That's where the provision of God in the person of Christ and in the work of Christ comes in. He says in verse 6, he says, Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. And then he quotes David's own writing. He's saying, look, David is saying this, and he goes into Psalm 32 in verses 7 and 8. He says, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. So we see two sides of what it is to be justified by believing God. There, and there are two aspects to it. David, by faith, was forgiven. His sin was not imputed. We're told that. He, God did not impute his sin to him. Guess what, folks? By faith, your sin is not imputed to you. So God holds back on that. That's the part that's just as if I'd never sinned. But it goes further, as we've talked about before. Abraham was by faith accounted Righteous. Righteousness was imputed to him. So it was, it's not just that your faith is, or your sin is not imputed. It's that righteousness is. So having given examples of Abraham and David, it, it led Paul to the questions that he's going to pose in the verses that we're going to be looking at this morning. And essentially the question is, how are we rightly related to God? What, what is, what's the mechanism? What's the nuts and bolts? What is the transaction? That's where we get into today's text. Verse 9, he says, Does this blessedness then, talking about the blessedness of Abraham, the blessedness of David that we've just looked at, does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. So the blessedness here, it's, a bless, it's talking about the blessedness through faith apart from the works of the law, as we saw in verses 6 to 8. He's asking, is this blessed limited, blessing limited only to people who are circumcised? Because he knew that in Judaism, the Jews, we've looked at that, where they took this religious, they, they made it a religious ritual, a rite. And they hung their hat, their hat on whether or not someone was circumcised or whether or not they're in with God. And we're going to see here where Paul absolutely dismantles that whole thing. In other words, showing us from God's word that it's just not so. He's quoted uh, Genesis fifteen six already in verse 3 when he talks about the justification by faith, that Abraham was justified by faith. Now he expands on that. Uh, he's going to demonstrate that it's not by circumcision. It's not by a religious right. In, in verse 10 he says, How then was it accounted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. So Abraham, he's saying Abraham was counted as righteous, not because he was circumcised, but because he wasn't. But while he wasn't, before that, he bases this assertion upon the fact that Scripture says that God credited Abraham's faith to him as righteousness in Genesis fifteen six. That was 14 years before God commanded him to be circumcised. And that's found in Genesis 17, 11, where God says, you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Not between me and Israel. Israel didn't exist at that time. It was Abraham, and it was God. And God said, you know, you have decided, you've chosen to trust me, and therefore I am reckoning you, accounting to you, imputing to you righteousness. 
So Paul's argument here, it's, it's essentially, it's a simple argument. He's saying if Abraham was righteous before being circumcised, then circumcision cannot be essential to righteousness. Period. <laughs> so in verses 11, uh, he says, and he received the sign of circumcision. It was a seal of the righteousness of faith, which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also. So what he's doing, he describes the outward sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that Abraham already had by faith. By describing circumcision as a seal, he's actually saying that circumcision functioned as a confirmation of the righteousness that Abraham already had. I don't know if you realize this, folks. Circumcision is not just something that Jews do and that, you know, some participate in now for various reasons. He's saying this goes all the way back to the, the, if you want to look at the principle of first mention, which is a big deal in Bible study, in looking at the principle of first mention, circumcision first shows up with this guy. And what Paul is saying is it showed up 14 years after he was reckoned as righteous by faith. He says it's a seal. Now, those of you that are married, you have a wedding ring. That wedding ring is a seal. Uh, unless you're a waitress and you don't want guys bugging you, then you wear one anyway. But <laughs> that's a whole different deal. I've known waitresses is like, I didn't know you were married. I'm not. I just don't want guys hitting on me all day long, you know, all that. But that for us, for those of us that are, are, are married, you look at someone, you see that ring on their finger, that's a seal. It's a sign that they're not on the market, that they are connected to another person. It relates to an event, but way more than that. I, you don't generally look at somebody that has a ring on their finger and wonder, I wonder how their wedding was. What was that day like? No, you usually look at that and you reckon that to be indicative of a life. That's part of Paul's point here. He's saying that this is a symbol. It's a sign of a deeper reality. It's not the reality that symbolizes it. It's The ring doesn't, it's a symbol. It means something, but it's not that thing. It's not my marriage. It symbolizes my marriage. And that's the point he's making. He's calling circumcision a sign of the covenant between God and Abraham. In Genesis 14, 6, he says again, it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you, period. He's saying that will be a reminder of the relationship that we have. And it's not a relationship that's based on law. We're going to look at that. That would be centuries later. It's a base, it's a relationship based on the fact that you chose to trust me. And, and we're going to see, folks, through the text as Paul unpacks this argument, that's the same thing for us. It's based on the fact, not because I am doing stuff, it's based on the fact of who he is, of the work he's done, not who I am, not the work I do. That's nonsense. He knew, Paul also knew that his Jewish contemporaries saw circumcision as a religious rite in Judaism. So he doesn't say that this is a sign or a symbol of the covenant of law. He's going back way before that, talking about Abraham. This is a sign and a symbol of the covenant that you had, that you were justified by faith. Now, you guys know how I feel about rituals. One of the things I caution from time to time when we come to the Lord's table uh, to receive communion don't let this, it can start out good. And, and the things of God can, can start out good and fresh and vibrant in our lives. But it, it, so it, we end up, we, we have a divinely appointed task in the, the Lord's table. He says, do this. That's the task. Pretty soon, if we are not careful and our hearts begin to kind of harden up about that thing, it goes from being a task to being a routine. It's just what we do the first Sunday of the month. It's just what we do. And we can move away from the reality that that represents. After that, if we continue, if we've gone from being, it being a task that God gave us, it's a divinely appointed task, and now it's a, it's, a, it's a routine that my church does, pretty soon, if it continues to harden up, if we allow it to continue to harden up, it becomes a ritual. And then we gut the meaning, 
and we just do it because that's what we do. Folks, that's the essence of religion. And that's part of what Paul is addressing here is, is that this whole thing about circumcision is not about religion. He's saying, if you reach back in Abraham's life, it's all about the relationship. It's all about the fact that he chose to trust me. And I, I told him years later, you know what? Here's something I want you to do that will represent the fact back then that you chose to trust me. By describing it as a sign of righteous, the righteousness that Abraham already had by faith before he was circumcised, he's demonstrating two things. First, he's showing, he's demonstrating that circumcision came 430 years before the law of Moses. And the Jews, there was a lot of Jews. There were a lot of Jews in, in the church at Rome. And he is addressing this to them. And it's probably kind of poking some of them. He's saying, look, it's not about that. Abraham came way before the law. He came way before Israel. I mean, it wouldn't be until his grandson wrestled that angel that he got his name changed from Jacob to Israel. And then his sons went on to become the nation. The second thing he's saying in this is he's clearly stating that this righteousness is universally available. It doesn't matter if you are a Martian. It doesn't matter. Well, it probably does because we don't know if there's people on Mars. But the point is, is that he's not saying that it's, it's a distinction because you're part of the Jewish race. He, he's saying it's not about that. It's not about law keeping. It's not about being a Jew. It's not about any of that. It's about faith. It's about trusting God. That's what faith is. I very often will, will replace the word faith with the word trust because it's not some weak need faith. Well, I believe in God. I talked about that. Demons believe. They shudder. But it's about a, a living reality. It's about the reality of Christ being central in your life. That, that you can agree with the Apostle Paul when he says, he is my life. To live is Christ, die is gain. That's the, the thing that he's talking about. That's the faith that's being mentioned here. Because Jew or Gentile alike, a Gentile, anybody that's not a Jew, need faith alone to have righteousness credited to them. What an awesome thing that is. What an awesome thing that is. You know, you, you look back on your life and you think, God declared me righteous. Not, not a religious transaction. Not something that I can just pack my head with facts over, but that I am literally, when he looks at me, he sees me clothed in the righteousness of his son and he is pleased with me and he loves me and he beckons me to a relationship not based on keeping rules. He beckons me to a relationship that is based in love, based in in trusting him for the details in my life. Verse 12, And the father, he says, Abraham's the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but also to those who walk in the steps of the faith, which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. So he's saying, this is equal opportunity here. This isn't just for you Jews. This happened way before you Jews even came into existence. That Abraham received a circumcision as a sign of the faith he already had means a couple of things. Number one, that, that he's the father of the circumcised, that's the Jews, as well as the father of those not, the Gentiles. What he's saying is this is an offer that's extended to all who are willing to walk by faith. It's not automatic. You're not born into this. You have to choose this. It's an act of your will. He makes it abundantly clear that this isn't because they're circumcised, but because they walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Point, faith is crucial in every case. Every case. Not circumcision, not ethnicity, but faith. In verse 13, he says, for the promise that he would be the heir of the world. Hang on to that. The heir of the world. (laughs) That's a broad statement. For the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. How beautiful is that? Paul stating here, he's saying this promise is fulfilled regardless of whether one is a Jew or a Gentile. It's That's taken out of the way. It's about justification. It's about righteousness. It's about coming about that, that, that it comes about only through one's faith in Jesus as Messiah. 
In verse 14, he says, For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of no effect. So that those that he's talking about here are the Jews who rely on the observance of the law of Moses to inherit the promise. What he's saying is if obedience to the law makes them heirs to the promise, then faith is empty. It has no effect because it's no longer the necessary condition for receiving the inheritance. You get that? And, and this is, I mean, this is a, he's putting forth a technical argument. I know that there's a lot of moving parts to this this morning and I want to get, that's why we're going through the rest of chapter four this morning because I want you to have a, just a good understanding of the argument that Paul puts forth. He's saying that if it's not by faith, it, it doesn't happen. The promise to Abraham would be nullified because Abraham couldn't follow the law since it hadn't yet been given. That's the point in that. So here's the logic for you and I. We know that no one can keep the law perfectly. Jesus illustrated that in the Sermon on the Mount. Paul has talked about it over and over again. Read the book of Galatians, you'll get that and other places. So no one can keep the law perfectly. And if the inheritance is to be based on adherence to the law, then there will be no heirs. (laughs) it, it, It can't follow. Because no fallen human being can adequately, adequately adhere to the law. So since you can't keep the law, you're not an heir if you're basing it on law. That means that faith is exercised in vain and the promise will never be fulfilled. Can't be. It, he's saying it's a non-starter. It can't happen. You run this out, you take, and he is taking God's word. He's reaching all the way back to Genesis. He's saying, you run this out to a logical conclusion. It has to be on the basis of faith or it can't happen. Because if it's not on the basis of faith, it's on the basis of law. And if it's on the basis of law, you fail. You don't do it. You, you can't, none of us can. We can't make it for a day adhering to the law of Moses, let alone a lifetime. So as we're, we're looking at just flowing along here in verse 14 again, he says, for those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of no effect. Verse 15, because the law brings about wrath. For where there's no law, there's no transgression. So the law doesn't qualify one to share the promised inheritance because no one can keep the law perfectly. We've looked at that. So inability to keep the law, that's what he's talking about when he talks about the transgression here. He uses that word transgression. It essentially means that the law becomes a vehicle for God's wrath because the law stirs wrath. The law is the standard. And if you fall short of the standard, we've looked at that. We looked at the wrath of God being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. That's part of what he's laid out here, especially if we regard the law as the basis by which we're justified and the basis of how we relate to God. That is not relating rightly to God. Here's what this is not saying when Paul says where there's no law, there's no transgression. And legalists love to have this, and they'll parade this verse out. Uh, see, see, <laughs> okay. So how can Paul say this? I mean, you, and, and the answer lies in the word transgression. What a transgression is, is overstepping a line and breaking a clearly defined commandment. So he's talking about transgressing the law of Moses, right? So what he's saying is where there's no line, there's no actual transgression. If you take the line out, there's no transgression. However, in chapter 5, when we get to chapter 5, we're going to look at sin that is not the crossing of the line of the law of Moses because he goes all the way back to Adam. And he talks about how sin is inherent in the human race. So it's not, this isn't, don't take this literally like, well, if if there's no law, then there's no transgression, because of course there was transgression before the law. But in this case, he's demonstrating the inadequacy of the law of Moses to save. He's demonstrating the inadequacy of the law of Moses to convey righteousness. Can't happen. The point here, and this is an important point. If you don't get anything else out of this morning's message, get this. The root of sin is not in breaking the law, but it is in breaking trust with God. I'll say it again. The root of sin isn't in breaking the law, but in breaking trust with God, with denying his loving, caring purpose in every aspect of our lives. That's why God makes it on the basis of trust, on the basis of faith. Before Adam sinned, he broke trust with God. 
Therefore, God's plan of redemption is centered on a relationship of trusting love, loving trust, faith, instead of rule keeping, instead of law keeping. The point in this is when we center our relationship with God on rule keeping instead of that of loving trust. We go against his whole plan. You don't, you're just not, not just neutral if you're a legalist. You're going against God. If you base righteousness on rule keeping, you base it on, I'm a good person, then you're actually going against the plan of God because God knows that there's none good, no, not one. And and the essence of that truth is that he had to send his son to die on our behalves. So it's actually a very strong position against the plan of God to not trust, to not walk by faith. See where he's going with this? This is some really good stuff. Really interesting how he lays this out. In verse 16, he says, therefore, in other words, based on what I've been saying here, it is of faith that it might be according to grace so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but to those who are of, the, the, of faith in Abraham, the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. So he's saying, look, this is justification by faith and it's of grace. He's, he's saying that the promised inheritance is by God's grace instead of the works of the law. It means that justification is effective towards everyone, to those of the law and to those of faith in Abraham. Now in context, understand when Paul is saying this, he's, when he says those who are of the law, he's talking about Jewish Christians because he's already established that it's impossible to, to get righteousness by the works of the law. So when he says to those of the law, he's not saying to those who are carrying out the mandate of the law. He's making a reference to the people that the law covered. He's talking about Jews. He's talking about Christian or Messianic Jews here. In Galatians chapter 3, we see something really interesting. He talks about, uh, in this verse, in verse 16, he talks about the promise might be sure to all the seed. He doesn't say seeds, he says seed. And Paul unpacks that in his letter to the churches in Galatia. In Galatians 3, uh, beginning in verse 16, he, he says, this is what the spiritual seed of Abraham is. He says, now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds as of many, but as of one and to your seed who is Christ. Now, you've heard me say that we are the seed of Abraham. We'll get to that. It wasn't heresy, I promise. Verse 17, And this I say, that the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect. What he's saying is the law coming 430 years later isn't retroactive. It doesn't reach back and nullify the promise to Abraham. In verse 18, he says, For if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. Gave what? The inheritance. What's the inheritance? In in verse 29 of the same chapter in Galatians 3, he says, And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed. Singular. It's a spiritual concept that he's talking about. It's not seeds as though it's by birth lineage. You're added in to the covenant. You're added in by faith. That's why we can legitimately call one another brothers and sisters because we're part of the family of God. So he says that if you're Christ, then you're Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Heirs of what? Salvation. Relationship. He's saying this is the way of being in right relationship to God. That by faith, you're added in. By faith, you're counted as a brother or as a sister. By faith, not by works, not by the work of the law, that you become Abraham's seed. Coming into right relationship with God is available to all who belong to Christ, who are the seed of and share the faith and the heritage of Abraham. In in the Old Testament, he talks about aliens and strangers. That's how he made the difference. That's how God looked at the difference between people that were in the covenant and people that were outside of the covenant. In that case, yeah, it was law. 
But the law, we know, the law could never affect salvation. It could never save anybody. It could not eliminate sin. It could cover sin. Verse 17, as it is written, I've made you a father of many nations in the presence of him who he believed, God, who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. Now, what on earth is he talking about there? I mean, what is that talking about? What is it? What it is? It's a reference to Abraham and Sarah's ability to conceive. Remember, the promise to Abraham is through your seed, the nations of the earth will be blessed. That's the promise. Abraham believed God for that. Even though he was an old geezer, he said, I believe you. I'm going to act. I'm going to structure my life around that. And folks, you will always structure your life around what you believe. Verse 19 tells us that Abraham's body was dead. <laughs> Sarah's womb was dead. Uh, and so that's the context here. Abraham's 100 years old. Sarah's 90. Now, God had told them earlier that through your seed, the nations of the earth will be blessed. And then he renews the covenant with them when they're this age. <laughs> so they're, they're beyond the age of legitimately conceiving a child. I don't know anybody 100 years old that's <laughs> been in that place or 90 years old. And so God is making sure that because Abraham, he tried to take things into his own hands and he, he got with you know, Hagar, the handmaiden, and you know, they had Ishmael and, and Ishmael ended up being banished to the wilderness of Paran, which is now Saudi Arabia, hint, hint. Anyway, so he, he goes through this whole deal and he says, your bodies are dead, dead to the ability to conceive. So the point here is if God could call the dead body of Abraham and the dead womb of Sarah to life, he can call those who are dead in their trespasses and sins to a new life in Jesus. That's us. This same miracle that he talks about with Abraham in a physical, tangible way is the same miracle that he performs in the hearts of every person who comes to him. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, he says, And you he made alive who were dead in your trespasses and sins. Here's a quote I came across from Chuck Smith. I, I, I love this. He's talking about bringing things to, into being that didn't exist and all of that. He says, I'm greatly comforted when God speaks about me as righteous, justified, glorified, holy, pure, and saintly. God can talk about such things before they exist because he knows they will exist. Praise God. We're headed for glory. When we throw off this flesh, it'll be a glorious day. Verse 18, who contrary to hope and hope believed so that he became the father of many nations according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. He trusted God for the promise, even though his body was definitely not in a place where he could do that on his own. What this is saying is despite his circumstances, they contradicted everything about childbearing. But despite his circumstances that, that, that contradicted that, Abraham still believed God for the promise. I want you to note too, we see here that, that Abraham in hope believed. In other words, it hadn't happened yet, but he believed it anyway. His faith, was, it's not described as a leap into the dark. Be careful on that. I, I've heard people make some wacky claims over the years of, well, God told me X. But it was a leap from what he saw in his circumstances. I'm old. I can't have it. And both he and Sarah actually laughed at God when he told them this stuff. That's why Isaac's name means laughing. <laughs> so uh, it, was, it wasn't a leap into the dark, but it was a leap from what he saw in his circumstances into the security of God's promises. And that's what God wants to see in us. Sometimes, folks, we don't understand our circumstances. What kind of circumstances are you facing? Uh, I've heard it said, you know, if you're not going through a trial right now, you're either coming out of one or you're going into one. We go through things, hard things in our lives. Paul's whole point here with Abraham is that he trusted God even though. So what are your circumstances? Are you trusting God even though? And you can fill in the blank. I don't know what's going on in your life, but there are areas in my life where I have to trust God even though I don't see it even though I don't understand what he's doing, even though this doesn't even look like something that God's in, and it is. He's the God of your circumstances. Trust him. 
This is loving trust. It's not law. That's the essence of the relationship. Verse 19, and not being weak in faith, he didn't consider his own body already dead since he was about a hundred years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. So a weak body didn't lead to a weak faith. That's Paul's point here. He's saying that Abraham pushed through anyway. He says, well, you know, God said it. So I guess somehow this is going to work out. And it did. Literally, his faith didn't weaken when he considered his own body. That's what this literally is saying. So in context, he's not implying that faith means closing one's eyes to reality. Abraham was still 100 years old. He'd look at his wife. Yeah, you're 90. You're supposed to get pregnant. Okay, we'll see how that works out. But God said it. So we're going to trust him. Why? Because we know he loves us. Because we know he has our best interests at heart. Always. Always. What it means is that Abraham was so strong in faith that he was not, he was undaunted by his circumstances. Now, I want to, I want to issue a caution here. We don't want to presume on God. You know, as I mentioned, sometimes people go to extremes and I don't want to minimize the fact that this is a full-blown miracle that God is talking about in Abraham's life. It had to be. And Abraham trusted God in spite of what he saw, in spite of what he knew. That doesn't mean that, and I don't know anybody personally here that falls in this category, but some people do, that if God tells you to go out and jump off of a 10-story building, that you're going to be okay. Don't presume on God. Don't presume on his grace. That's a dangerous place. And yeah, that's an extreme example. But there are ways, even subtle ways, that we can begin now to presume on God's grace. A good example, I remember when I was in Bible college, (laughs) this guy, Joe, uh, was my friend in one semester there. And at the end of the semester, he had no money. And uh, he said, well, John, I'm headed to Vegas. I said, what? You're a Bible college student. What are you going to Las Vegas for? He said, well, I prayed about it. And I'm thinking, you need to pray some more. Um, he said, I prayed about it. And I don't have the money for tuition. So I'm going to go and I'm, I'm just going to throw everything I've got left. And we'll see if God wants me to come back for, he went home. He was presuming, I believe he was presuming on God. You don't violate one aspect of who God is to fulfill another. (laughs) Something for nothing doesn't generally work. At any rate, so that was a subtle way. And he was convinced in his own mind that God was in this. And I tried to talk him out of it. Hang on to what money you have left because he ended up coming back broke and going home broke. So looking at that, Genesis chapters 12 to 24, they show it, they, they, they have a detailed account of Abraham's life. And, and in that account, Abraham, he, he had many successes. He also had some real significant failures. Like when he went to Egypt, trying to pass his wife off, his sister, you know, all that. But the, the, what, just to note here, Paul, he's not intending to provide a detailed narrative of the life of Abraham here. So what is his point? His point is, is that Abraham's life was ultimately typified by faith in God, by loving trust in God. I think about when Abraham was in Bethel and he was hearing from God. He heard the voice of God when he was in Bethel. And if you trace it out in Genesis, he decided to leave, to go down to Egypt, which is a type for the world. He didn't hear one word from God until he returned to the house of bread. That's what Bethel means. Why? This is not about presuming on God. It's about hearing his voice. It's about having a loving relationship that's based on mutual trust. I trust him. He trusts that I'm going to submit it to him before I go through with it. That's why James says, you know, if a man says, I'm going to go to such and such a city and spend a year there, engage in business and make a profit. If that man doesn't say, Lord willing, straight up, he's a fool. Because it's about a relationship. It's about being rightly related to God to such a degree that I do hear his voice. And yeah, we can get it wrong, guys. Sometimes we do. But he's gracious. This is a a relationship that's based in his grace. And it's not like playing Monopoly where you got to go back. You can't collect the $200. You're going to go back. The whole thing. Lose all your property. No. He says, let's just pick up where we left off, John. Yeah, you got out there. Yeah, you did that wrong. Yeah, you sinned or whatever it is. But he's gracious and he loves us. He doesn't stand there with his arms folded 
He's got a beard. God has to have all the pictures show. But he doesn't, he's not there with his arms folding, waiting to extract revenge. There are sometimes consequences to our lives. I'm not saying that's not so. It is. But if you're justified, it's a relationship. If, if you're walking with him in loving trust, it's about the relationship. And he loves you. And he has your best at, at heart, all the time. All the time. We'll wrap this up here. Verse 21, and being fully convinced that he was, that what he had promised, he was able also to perform. Uh, Abraham didn't know how God would fulfill his word. But you know what? God says, you're going to have a baby. He waits 25 years. Partway through, he says, well, I guess I've waited long enough. You know, Hagar, let's do this. And, and yeah, that was wrong. And, and, and Abraham's heart got right with God. But he still didn't know how God was going to fulfill this promise. He had no idea. Folks, that's part of trusting him. When you don't see the end, when you don't see the outcome, when it just plain hurts, trust him. Because if you're not going through it, you will. We all do. We got to know that we're related to a loving father, not an extracting taskmaster that's willing and waiting for us to get out of line. Abraham knew that uh, he knew God. He had every confidence that God was fully able to work out that which he had promised. So the question is, is that would you rather learn from your own stuff? Would you rather lean on that? Would you rather lean on your own ability to keep rules? Would you rather lean on God's having kept them in Christ? Would you rather be be in a gracious, a grace-filled relationship than an illegal one? I don't want law. Number one, it, it can't work because I can't keep it. And number two, I would much rather have love. In one way, Abraham's faith was, it was a wonderful faith. But in another way, it was the most reasonable thing to do to trust God because his word is the surest thing that there is. If God says it, uh, what was that bumper sticker years ago? God said it, I believe it, that settles it. Done. And sometimes our faith is stretched, isn't it? Sometimes we go, hi, I have no idea how you're getting me out of this one. And yet here you are. Here I am. Abraham was fully convinced, it says. In Hebrews 11, verse 1, we, the writer, Paul or somebody else, says, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. The word evidence is the conviction or the confidence of things not seen. I have confidence that God is who he says he is and he will work in this situation because he said he would. That's trust. That's the conviction that he's talking about. That's the confidence that Paul is saying that Abraham has here. In verse 22, he says, therefore, it was accounted, it was imputed to him for righteousness. It's the third time that he quotes Genesis fifteen six. Is he trying to make a point? Yeah, he is. Under the inspiration of the Spirit, God doesn't waste words. He wants us to know our righteousness is imputed. It is not based on us. It is based on him. It is not about anything that has to do with law. It has everything to do with the cross. It has everything to do with the fact that by faith, by trusting him, I'm declared righteous. So the point in this is that Faith that results in righteousness is not some vague, abstract principle. Paul's been very clear. He's been going through the... You guys will probably be glad when we're done with the section. But the point is, he's been very clear, very detailed in telling us just what this transaction is. The principle in it is genuine faith sticks to God's promises. I, You know what? I've been through things that have pressed my life in. I wrote one time, if it weren't for the knowledge that God is moving when my life is pressed in on every side, I wouldn't wish this on anybody. And that's true. That's true for all of us. We go through things. Sometimes they're really hard. It doesn't mean that we get, you know, all doctrine. Well, let me tell you. No, there are times where we weep with those who weep. We mourn with those who mourn. We come alongside and we just pour compassion on their lives because they're going through a difficulty that is sometimes hard for us to understand. I remember one time 
uh, I've mentioned this before, but it was so profound and it was, it had directly to do with what we're talking about here. After my daughter went to heaven, I was broken. I was messed up. And I had a woman come up to me one time and she said, you know, I never had a kid, but I had this dog. And I flashed. I mean, I, I was like, wow. And yet God is faithful. He spoke to my heart in that moment. He said, she means it. She hasn't had a child. She doesn't know what you're going through, but she's reaching for compassion. She's reaching for understanding. She's trying to come alongside, even though she's never walked in those shoes. And I, I just praise God. Praise God. So it's not about the details of coming alongside. Sometimes people miss it, folks. Give them the benefit of the doubt. Understand that if you're going through it and somebody comes alongside, they're doing their best to pour compassion, to pour understanding into your life. So genuine faith sticks to God's promises despite the whirlwind of external circumstances that might appear to contradict it. That woman's understanding contradicted what I thought she would be saying. But I was so comforted when God showed me she's reaching. The point here is, and most importantly, faith receives its nourishment in being anchored to the God who made the promises. So you want to have your your faith grow? It will be stretched. He's in the business of stretching us, isn't he? He's in the business of allowing us to go through things that we didn't sign up for. He's not being cruel. He's being loving. He's stretching our faith that we could increase the trust that we have because he wants us to trust him in every aspect of our lives. He can and will fulfill the pledges that he's made to you and I because he's the resurrecting God who creates life out of death. <laughs> and he, he, he's the sovereign God who summons into existence that which does not exist. Look at Abraham's life. Look at yours. Your salvation is every bit of miracle as Abraham and Sarah having a kid. Our redemption cost God everything, but he did it for us. Abraham believed that God would fulfill his covenant promises, and he did. So too, in context here, the Jews and Gentiles alike become part of Abraham's family, his spiritual seed. That's you and I. When they believe that he's fulfilled his saving promises in and through the Lord Jesus. Verse 23, now it was written for his sake alone, not written for his, now it was not written for his sake alone, that it was imputed to him, but also for us. Hang on to that, guys. He is being very practical here. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him, who raised up Jesus, our Lord, from the dead. You think it was impossible for Abraham and Sarah to have a baby at 100 years old, at 90 years old? Think about raising a guy from the dead. There was obviously great benefit to Abraham in God's promise. And Paul sees the scripture as relevant to all believers. In Romans chapter 15, verse 4, we read, For whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we, through the patience and comfort of the scriptures, might have hope. Our hope is in the reality that we, through believing God, the one who raised Jesus from the dead, will have our faith credited to us as righteousness. The resurrection of Jesus, it actually inaugurated a new world of the promises to the seed of Abraham. That's what he's saying, is that through the resurrection, this can come about. Verse 25, last verse in the chapter two, who was delivered up because of our offenses and who was raised because of our justification. There's those two prongs to that again. Paul wraps up this section by revisiting the two prongs upon which our justification rests. He says he was delivered up, not only because of our offenses, but in order to put them away. That's what being redeemed is about. Since he was delivered up, he was also raised up because of our justification in which we become rightly related to God. He's, he, he has spelled out the formula here. If you want to look at this, I'm not, I'm not into formula like, you know, we're going to cook something, but I'm talking, he's talking about the way to be rightly related to God is to trust him for your life, to trust the work of Christ in your life, that it is effective. Yeah, it happened 2000 years ago, but it's every bit as effective today as it was when he hung there and he paid for your sins. And then 
as proof of that, that his life was satisfactory to the Father, he rose from the dead. In the first instance, our offenses, sin, was a problem that needed to be dealt with, and it was when he delivered him up. In the second instance, our justification is the result that is assured by Christ's resurrection. If he didn't resurrect, we have not been justified. If we have not been justified, we are still in our sins. That's why Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 says that if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, we are all people the most pitiable. That's why. It's because of righteousness. It's because of justification. Because if he didn't raise from the dead, we have no hope. We have not been justified. In my redemption, sin has not been imputed. That's good news. That's good news. So with my sin now out of the way, righteousness is imputed. Perfection. The perfection that belongs to Jesus is transferred to my account. I can't spend it out of existence. It is. We're going to look at that when we get further in Romans where he talks about where sin abounds, grace superabounds. It abounds all the more. You can't out-sin the grace of God. That's how much righteousness you have. First, we trust him for our sin. And if you don't know Jesus this morning, you can fix that. You simply ask him to come into your heart. You tell him that you're sorry for your sins and that you want a new life. And he'll give you a new life. He will come in. He'll forgive you for your sins. And he, this righteousness that we're talking about will be yours inexhaustible. It's all a work of faith. We don't supply anything, folks, but a heart that is willing to believe, a heart that is willing to trust. This whole thing, it's about trusting God. Yeah, I trust him for my salvation and I trust him for my life. I trust him in the midst of the trials that I'm in. I trust him and I don't always. There are times where I get sideways about something and Frankly, sometimes we just forget that he's there and he's right there to to bring comfort. In the words of Matthew 11, Jesus says, come to me when you're weak and you're heavily laden. He says, take my yoke upon you. You'll find rest for your souls. Let's pray. Father, a brief look at, at, at justification, actually a detailed look, but a brief one. Lord, let these truths be worked out in our lives. Let these be realities that we walk in. Let your word manifest in our hearts in such a way that we live not by the law, but that we live in trusting union to you, that we live in a relationship, that we live rightly related to you, not based on our own stuff, but based on yours, on the work that Jesus accomplished for us at that cross. And on the fact that when he rose from the dead, that he can now share his righteousness with us. We're beyond grateful, Lord. We thank you. We thank you for the power of your word. We thank you for this treatment that the Apostle Paul goes into, uh, giving us a thorough understanding of what righteousness by faith is all about. Pray that you bring to our remembrance the things that we've looked at this morning. We know that for each of us that's different. But by the power of your spirit, conform us, mold us, to the image of your Son. In Jesus' name, amen.